quick note I wanted to make. I, I uh, here in a couple weeks, it'll be a few more weeks, but my friend Tony that uh, came a few evenings there, I'm, I'm, he's going to begin coming on uh, probably every other week just for a while uh, to help us um, with worship and some other things. So I just wanted to let you know I'm kind of excited about that, but I'll have more details about that later. Uh, but tonight, Genesis chapter 4, I say that in part so that as you come and you, you try to take part in the service and just the prospect of it being me every Sunday night, it won't always be like that. So that's kind of exciting, I think. Anyway, Genesis chapter 4, <laughs> it's, it's crucial to remember, crucial to remember, not only as we seek to understand and interpret the Bible correctly, but as we try to understand humanity and society and our world correctly, that from Genesis 4-1 on, everything in the world is cursed. Everything. Genesis 4 and following is not the world as it was that existed in Genesis 1-2 to and for part of 3. There is a post-fall order to the universe now. Everything from the ground itself, think of that, it's in every atom of the dust to every human being, every single one that is ever born, conceived, and every human relationship, all of them are irrevocably cursed unless God intervenes to undo it. He's the only one who can. And that's what he promised to do in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And he also gave evidence of how he would do that in 321. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. In other words, God will undo the curse of sin and death by sending his son into the world to become the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head by offering himself as a substitute to stand in the place of sinners and be obedient to God where humankind had failed. That's the story of the Bible. That's what's the undercurrent of everything that's going on. Jesus will crush the serpent's head by ruining his entire plan to get the human race destroyed to the eternal dishonor of God. But the road to redemption, the road back to Eden, back to paradise, will be long and it will be brutal. Sin against a holy God is a greater offense than we can fathom. More than we can fathom. That's that's what the story of the Bible recounts from here on out. That's why it's so bleak. The, the essence of the curse God put on creation and on mankind is enmity, conflict, but mainly conflict between the two seeds that he spoke of in 315. That enmity that he curses us with here, that is prophesied here more or less, becomes immediately evident in the text itself with the story of two brothers, Cain and Abel, two seeds. The first result of the fall in human relationships was trying to cover up our sin insufficiently with fig leaves. The second was shifting blame to one another. The third inevitably will be murder. Murder. And all because it is now in our nature. Here's the amazing thing. All because it's now in our nature to both try to get God's approval back through our performance and to disassociate ourselves from sin by denying the fact that we are sinners. And that, beloved, is 
religion. It's man-made religion. That's what's given birth in the story of Cain and Abel. Trying to distance ourselves from sinfulness by our good works is the purpose of all man-made religion, all human spiritual pursuits, when God will conquer sin precisely by identifying with it and owning it in himself through Jesus Christ, meaning that faith in Jesus Christ is the only way there's going to be for salvation. Let's pray before we read. Father, I thank you for your book. I thank you, Lord, for this time that you've given us tonight. Lord, I pray that the text will become clear, that the reason you breathed it out would become evident to us, Lord, that you would help me speak clearly, sufficiently in light of this passage. And I pray that, Father, you'd watch over everyone, everyone listening, young to old, and enable them to hear and grasp the essence of this important text for us. I ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me look at verses 1 and 2. Start with 1 and 2. We're going to work our way down to 16 tonight. Genesis 4. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. The Bible introduces, this actually matters. The Bible introduces intimacy as the knowledge of someone. You notice that? Adam knew Eve, his wife, and so as the result of this knowing, she conceived and bore Cain. The first child born into the world that we're told of was Cain. His name means to get or to create. So his name embodies hope. You can hear that in it, this idea of vitality. His birth is celebrated, obviously, because of his name. The expectations are very high for him. Eve says, we hear what she says when she gives birth. I have gotten, that's the word to get, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She may be implying, I think she is, in her high hopes in naming him Cain to get something, that what this firstborn son will get is the curse reversed. This is the promised seed that will crush the serpent's head. Right? I mean, why wouldn't she think that? Here's offspring. So this has to be him. Not knowing yet that things, things do not go very well for firstborn sons in the book of Genesis. Right? Not at all. But in verse 2, she gives birth to another son, names him Abel. His name means vapor or nothingness. Right? You, you, you see that immediate, celebrate the firstborn son, everything is going well, and then we had another one. Right? It's just, his name means vapor. It means nothingness. The second son is all but dismissed by his mother. There's going to be a lot of that. One son's name, or one son's name embodies hope and vitality. The other embodies the idea of being secondary, discarded to some degree, looked over. The New Testament will reverse the order of these two brothers, but for now, these are the names of the two sons. Two brothers. One a shepherd, the other a farmer. In Genesis, when we consider Cain and Abel, think of the other brothers in the book of Genesis. Jacob and Esau, right? Uh, Isaac and Ishmael. Joseph and his brothers, we realize that the idea, this idea of enmity within families is a crucial part of the story of redemption. Remember, beloved, the Bible and therefore human history is the story of two offsprings in Genesis 3.15, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. That's two families that always exist, two communities. What sets them apart 
is identified for us here for the first time in chapter 4. Look at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So both brothers had the desire to bring an offering to the Lord, obviously. Both of them had regard for the Lord. They wanted to honor him. To do so, Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground, of, of his labor, which, which again, later on in Scripture, the fruit of the ground will be included in offerings that God does accept. Okay, Abel brings an animal sacrifice, the firstborn of his flock and his fat portions, uh, all showing things, again, that God will later command and accept. But then, without... Any reason given to us yet, the Lord had regard, he accepted the offering of Abel, but he had no regard, he did not accept the offering of Cain. The first thing we should take from that is not to try and theologize it right away. The text will do that for us. But we have to understand something. God is free. He can do whatever he wants. And nothing that God would ever do would be evil. Who would hold God up? To a standard that would say what you just did is wrong. He cannot do wrong. He cannot do evil. He's free to accept or reject whatever he wants. That's part of what's what needs to be seen here. The only obligation God has to anything is the obligation he's made to himself to keep his word. So it might seem like what's happening here then is just that God is capricious. Like all the other gods we read about. And he picked one and not the other, and he created all this conflict and tension just because he could. But that's not what the text reveals. We could try to identify the reason for which God accepted one offering and not the other in the offerings themselves. But the text does not provide that information. That would be speculation at best. The answer as to why God accepted Abel's and not Cain's is not in the offerings they brought. Listen to verse 4 again, the second part of verse 4, and then into verse 5. And Abel also brought of the firstborn, or I'm sorry, in the middle of verse 4. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Look at the way that text reads. The person is mentioned before their offering. When we're told that God accepted one and not the other... It's the person. The implication is that what God had issue with was the condition of Cain's heart in bringing the offering. That's why we read at the end of verse 5, so, because God had no regard for it, Cain was very angry and his face fell. Why is Cain angry about this? Why is anger the response to his offering not being accepted? If, If the desire in bringing the offering was just to honor the Lord, to give him something... The response to it being rejected would not be anger. It would be like a question. Oh, what would you accept? Right? What, what would bring you honor? I just want to honor you. The issue God had with Cain was not what he brought, but why he brought it. What he thought bringing an offering meant in the first place. That's confirmed in the New Testament. It's actually revealed to us in the New Testament that the issue was the heart. Because the New Testament gives us revealing commentary on this event in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. 
what made Abel's sacrifice acceptable? Faith, right? Through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. What's the implication there about Cain's sacrifice? What made Abel's sacrifice acceptable to God? He brought it in faith. That's it. Doesn't matter what he would have brought. He brought it in faith. Therefore, God accepted it. No presumption on Abel's part. No belief that his bringing of the offering would commend him to God. Only that he, as Hebrews will define faith in chapter 11, believed God was there, that he existed, and deserved Abel's praise. He came hoping for a reward, not expecting or demanding one. Cain brought his offering in hopes of impressing God, gaining his favor, leverage with God. Hebrews 11 reveals that Abel brought his offering in faith in God, longing for God to accept him, while Cain brought his as a work, expecting God to accept him because he brought it. That, beloved, is the difference. It has always been the difference. It will always be the difference, mainly between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Faith versus works. And it has been the difference in humanity's response to God ever since. It never changes. Only the details change. There are two communities in the world, two families, those of faith and those of works. One way leads to eternal life. The other way leads to death. And if not our own immediately, it will be someone else's. Enmity, conflict. Right? That's the result of trying to get God's approval by your works, right? Look, look, look at six and seven. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? Again, as if he didn't know. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, which again should be against you, that's how four is meant there. It wants him, but you must rule over it. Sin wants to rule you, but you have to rule over sin. God comes once again with a question, doesn't he? Like he did in 3.9. Where are you? Why are you angry, he asks this time, and why has your face fallen? God knows precisely why Cain is angry and feels dejected. He pursues Cain in his dejection just as he had pursued his father, Adam, if Cain brings an offering in faith rather than as, than as a means of trying to curry God's favor through the work of his hands, he'll be accepted. It's still there for him. The tension between bringing offerings to God as a grateful gift or as a way to control God's favor will be present throughout the rest of the scriptures. That tension is the tension between humility and control. It's what it's always been. Even though he's angry at God, he's given the opportunity by God to respond correctly. But the text introduces a problem inherent in mankind as the reason that Cain never does that. Sin. That's what it's called here for the first time. Sin. This rebellious idea that we can live independently apart from God and on our own terms is not dormant in us. It is not neutral. It is not passive. It can't be turned one way or the other. Sin is crouching at the door of our hearts every single moment, desiring to rule over us. Do you see that? This is the same word used in the curse to Eve. Same phrasing. 
her desire would be for her husband to rule over him when in fact he will rule over her. Sin is foundationally the desire to rule oneself rather than to be ruled by God. Everything fractured in humanity comes down to the fact that we are incapable of exercising dominion like we were commanded to. Whether it's over this thing or that thing, we can't do it. The seed of the woman promised in 315 then, we find in chapter 4, will have to be someone who can exercise dominion not just over creation, not just over the serpent, but over sin. Sin is lethal. It, it is, when the first time it appears as sin, it isn't doing bad things. What is sin when it first appears, when it's called that? It's an aggressive force ready to ambush Cain. It's in him. Do you see that? Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. If the fall has introduced sin into the DNA of mankind in such a way that this desire to rule ourselves rather than be ruled by God is now a constant temptation, are we ever going to be able to rule over it? Is the question the text is asking. Who will be able to resist? Will anyone be able to resist? That's what the Bible will continue to ask of every seed of the woman that appears on every page of the Bible. Can this one rule over sin? Can this one fight it and get rid of it? Look at verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. No, the answer is no. We will not be able to rule over sin. I mean, God spoke to Cain personally. All right, it, it had zero effect on Cain's desire to kill his brother. That's where we, that's what freedom has brought. Murder. Sin is successful in ruling over Cain. Look, the dominion over sin is the task of humanity now. And it's one we are powerless to perform properly. Again, we can't exercise dominion properly over anything, whether it's outside of us or inside of us, maybe especially if it's inside of us. Cain, just like Adam, had the opportunity to respond correctly to God, but sin was successful in ruling over him. Again, there's a serious problem in the fulfillment of the promised seed. The seed of the woman so far and we will see it again and again and again and again, is unable to rule over sin. And we must. Its desire is for you. You must rule over it. That's the law. That's the law. Do this and live. And if we're unable, it's deadly that we can't rule over sin because sin is not going to be taking any days off in its quest to rule over us. It's not stagnant. It's not neutral. It wants to rule us. If the seed of the promised of the woman promised in 315 is to crush the serpent's head, we're going to need somebody to be born into this world that doesn't have Adam's blood in him, right? We're going to need somebody without Adam's DNA because if you have Adam's DNA, sin will rule over you. You will not rule over it. And the desire to commend ourselves to God through our works is so powerful that when we discover God will not accept the work of our hands, we become hateful, bitter, and ultimately violent people. And if someone is accepted by God without ever having relied on their works to gain his favor, 
While we have worked very hard to gain God's favor, what the text reveals is that these two seeds will not coexist peacefully. The goal is to get God's favor. When it's faith and works, those are two literal communities of humanity. And one hates the other one. This is why I reference Cain and Abel's conflict all throughout our study in Galatians. It is the conflict between the two seeds in the world, works and faith. That is always the conflict that is the most threatening to human beings. The conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, which is the conflict between works to gain God's approval and faith to gain God's approval. How can humanity enjoy the favor of God that we had in the Garden of Eden before we fell? We, we, we lost almost everything in the fall. Well, these are the first two people born post-fall. Okay? They're the only two people they're the only characters in the narrative so far that are born with this nature we know we'll all be born with. How do they act? How do you act if you're born with this nature? Their actions show us the immediate effect of the fall. This is what it's going to be like. They're bringing offerings in the first place because they feel the need to, they, they, they realize we, we've lost something. We need to retie ourselves back to God. We've been cut off. Beloved, that's what religion is. It's the attempt to tie us back to God. That's the root of the word itself. Religion. Retie. Retie us back. We're trying to tie ourselves back to God's original vision for humanity. To the link that we once had to God himself. The serpent's answer, very deceitfully, is works. The seed of the woman's answer is faith. So in Cain's mind, Abel has to die. That reveals who he is. That reveals why he brought his offering. That reveals why God did not accept it. Once Cain kills Abel, he reveals that he's what McDavid calls a ladder climber. The fact that he was so upset by God's preference of Abel's sacrifice over his own at least suggests that he was thinking of the sacrifice in terms of tying himself back to God, clawing his way up the religious ladder. But the Lord speaks to him again in verses 9 and 10. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Just could you imagine talking to God this way? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. This is what God does, or at least God has done so far. He addresses the sinning man with questions. And like Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, I think God wants us to see this. That's why it's in the text. Cain avoids taking responsibility for his actions. The problem is that also like Adam and Eve, he can't hide his actions. Abel's blood is crying out to God from the ground. Now that's alarming. That's alarming because it means that God is aware of all human sin. Blood, when it's shed cries out to him from the ground. Injustice screams to God from the earth. God is always able to find it. He can always hear it. He can always locate it. We aren't going to be able to avoid his judging eye. It's what the text is telling us. There is no hiding. There is no escape from a holy God who's made all things and sees all things. We aren't going to be able to avoid him. We aren't going to be able to get one over on him. 
He sees it all. The one who has pronounced a curse on humanity is always aware of humanity's guilt. He's always aware of our sins, whether they're hidden or out in the open. Cain responded like you would respond if you were dejected. How should I know? Right? How should I know? Is it my job to keep tabs on him? This this is where we are two people out. Right? You, you really think that's an acceptable answer. Right? Well, it's not my job to watch him. I don't know. So sin has gone from crouching at the door to coming in and sitting on the couch, putting its feet up. Right? He's just ruled by it. Look at 11 through 16. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. See, why, why does that matter to him? Right? He wanted God's favor. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So another curse is pronounced immediately, this time directly on Cain. The place where Abel's blood was spilled is the place where Cain will be punished. He'll be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Right, His parents were expelled from the garden for their sins. As a result, their son has sinned, and now he won't have a home either. The nature of the curse on Cain is that he will work this ground, but the ground is also going to work against him. It's going to be actively. It's not that it just won't yield. Now it's going to be against him. His life will be, therefore, miserable. He will be a wanted criminal without a home, Since the ground will not yield to him, it won't grant him, that is, any refuge, stability, or security. And, notice this, Cain fears retaliation. Where did that come from? My punishment is greater than I can bear. He's saying to God, it's not fair. And what does this free-thinking human being do? He does what we all do. He blames God like his father had. The text is showing you there the DNA of Adam is in every single one of his offspring. The point of the text is to threaten that promise. So that as you read the Bible, you're saying it is going to take a miracle for this promise to come about. This is the story of Jesus. That's what the Bible is. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Again, it's not fair. You've, you've driven me away from the ground and now somebody's going to kill me. That, that's interesting. For one thing, how many people are there on the earth at this point? Right? I mean, it's, it's interesting that the text tells you in verse three, in the course of time, which makes room for other children to be born. But again, this, it, it, I guess we can't really say, but, but maybe Cain's fear here is a little bit irrational, but I, I don't think so. Who is Cain afraid of? But even more so, the greater question is, why is he afraid of them? I mean, think about why would he be thinking they're going to kill me? What had he just done? 
he had killed because he was angry at his brother. He was jealous of his brother. He wanted justice. Right? That's why he's afraid of people finding him and killing him. What makes him think people will want to avenge Abel and take justice into their own hands? Cain is one of them. He knows that's what's in us. Cain is religious. And when you're religious, you demand a reckoning from everyone and anyone who is guilty. Religion leads to murder. Man-made religion leads to murder. It always does. There's a whole book about killing infidels. There's no sense of humility in the religious. There's a valiant sense of justice and of duty in the purely religious. Cain knows what's out there because Cain knows what is in here. And again, inexplicably, there's mercy for the guilty in verse 15. God will protect the one he has cursed. God will place a mark on Cain. It's impossible to say what that mark was or what it actually meant. I think we're biblically responsible to say that nobody today has that mark. That mark ended in the flood when all of Cain's offspring were wiped out, his natural descendants. So they're not here anymore. So it's, it's, he put a mark on Cain. The word for mark here, this is interesting, is the same word as sign that is used in Numbers 626, Daniel 1 7 in the Old Testament. When you put that verb with this preposition as you see it here in Hebrew, it can mean to give to. The, the, the sentence could read, be just as faithful to the original text. Yahweh gave to Cain a sign. We're not told what the mark or the sign is. We just know what it was for. We know what it was meant to do. Not only will God protect Cain from harm by letting everyone know who he is, so there must, there has to be some other people in the world at this time, but God will also even avenge Cain sevenfold if anyone does harm him because he's been sealed by the Lord. Later on, capital punishment will be required, commanded by God for a murderer. Why does God spare Cain? He's a murderer. Probably because God is trying to prevent a breakout of bloodshed, which at this point would be very harmful to the family of Adam and Eve in their history. It's hard to say. I I think that has something to do with it. We're very early on. If, if, If it explodes now, when it's very small, it's all over, and that is not God's design. He's made a promise he intends to keep. I think that's why he is protecting Cain. God treats Cain with mercy to preserve the future of his descendants as God will do throughout scripture. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. See, now it's voluntary. Right? Before they were put out of the garden, now Cain went away. This is part of his punishment, but he did it. He's the subject of that verb. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. He went east to Nod, wherever that was. The the word interestingly means wandering. So it, it could have been a specific place, but again, where would that have come from at this point? It's hard to say. It's not the main thing. Beloved, there are two communities here, two families being created. But the seed of the woman is lying dead in a field while the seed of the serpent is spreading out. What will become of the promise? Not only has humanity been expelled from the Garden of Eden, but they'll struggle to find a home anywhere else. The first 
descendant of Adam and Eve will wander like a fugitive on the earth as guilty and as cursed as his parents. It does not look good for the human race. Cain's competition with Abel follows in the text immediately from the fall. But it is fastened to the desire to earn God's favor. There's an inseparable link between enmity and violence and human self-justification. Their desire, that desire to build up our own pride while ignoring our own faults is a spiritual issue. That's the result of the fall or a result of the fall. It doesn't just ruin our relationship with God to think so transactionally. It destroys our relationships. We may be tempted here to think that we identify more with Abel. Right, that we're always the victim of another's actions. That's how Cain thought, even though he was the killer. Making him just like his father. But our desire to be like Abel, our desire to be the righteous victim, is the same desire Cain had when God cursed him. It's the same desire Adam had when he claimed to be the victim of Eve and really the victim of God. We have this inherent need to distance ourselves from Cain, from sinners, from sin, from guilt, to reject our identity as sinners, which just proves we're exactly like Cain was. That's what makes us pursue religion as the way to find God's favor instead of faith. Religion here being the attempt to find God's favor through our works rather than faith, like Cain was doing when he brought his offering. Trying to excuse or distance ourselves from sin is the purpose of almost all man-made religion. Or it is the purpose of all man-made religion. By doing these things, I will sever my ties with sin and God will accept me. So the point of the text is not thou shalt not kill and it isn't try to think of sacrifices and good works as honoring to God when you give them instead of trying to earn his favor. Who's going to answer that? Right? Who's going to be judged jury and executioner as far as you know in determining whether or not the offerings you bring to God you did it to honor him or that you were actually trying to gain his approval through them? Right? It's It's... The completely wrong way to think. We do that. We, we, we try to make these, because we honestly think we, we, we do that so we won't look like sinners. Here's the ironic thing. Only sinners try not to look like sinners. By denying that's what they are. That's a sin. It's a sin to deny what you are. It's a sin to be rightly accused of by God for not honoring him with faith and then try to put it off as though you're not responsible because you did the best that you could. We aren't inherently good people who just need better information to correct ourselves. We are a race of hopelessly fallen sinners separated from God, against him, and ruled by our own desires. So for this text to hit home in us, we have to identify with Cain at least for a little while, and realize our tendency towards self-justification through works, right? Because 
when that doesn't work, we turn into killers. He said, I would never kill somebody for, yeah, but you will hate people. And Jesus says, yeah, gotcha. Right? I mean, that, that's, that's what we find. God is always, we, we talk like this is good news. That, well, God is looking at the heart. He knows my intentions. That's super bad. That's not good news. That's not good news. What is that? Saying that is an attempt to distance ourselves from any guilt or unworthiness. We want to believe that by bringing things, we, we earn God's favor. That's in our DNA. And so what happens to the cult? Think about Genesis 4 in light of the church. What happens to the culture of a church when the running theme is, I will earn God's favor through what I do in serving him? Do you know what we create? Genesis 4. No wonder there's always tension and conflict. We don't believe that we are saved by grace through faith alone. That turns us against each other. Of course it does in a work for pay environment. Go to a company and watch somebody get a raise. When the other employees don't. I, now wait a second. I've been doing the same work. Maybe you have. Maybe you have, right? But what we live on merit. In merit, why do people say things like that's not fair? Because the expectation is we all get the same thing. No, we don't. Like what, that is, that is a killer to human culture. Everybody should get the same thing. That's called socialism. You know what socialism equals every time it's implemented? Genocide. Right? It's not healthy. It's not good. It's not real. It's not rational. The immediate, that immediate connection of Cain to Adam in the narrative and the immediate revelation of the fact that Adam's descendant will not be able to rule over sin means for us it will be impossible for us to avoid sin. It's going to have to be addressed that we're sinners, is what I'm saying. It's going to have to be addressed. that there's You can't bring offerings to undo it. All the offerings will do when they're not accepted is reveal that you thought you could earn God's approval by paying for it. And that will make you furious at this idea of grace, and it will turn you off to the gospel. You see why it's so deadly? The gospel feels like straight-up welfare. And we hate welfare. Let's be honest. Okay? And again, I'm not making a social or categorical argument here for or against welfare. That's not my point. My point is we don't like it. We do not like you didn't work for that. Why do you have it? We don't like that. And in some ways it makes sense, not when it comes to salvation. That's the completely wrong and anti-Christ attitude to have. How dare you enjoy your salvation? That that's what the Pharisees are doing in Luke 15. They're all mad because Jesus is eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners and they've been working their whole lives to honor God. Now they're mad. This fool says he's from God. Look who he's eating with. Right? He should be eating with us. That's why they're mad. That's what those three parables in Luke 15 are about. We've, we've talked about that before. Right? They're all mad because, wait, 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 you don't eat with them. They didn't work for it. You don't, you're not from God. You'd be with us if you were from God, right? It's, it's, this, that's Cain. Wait a minute. Why do you, in other words, why didn't he kill himself? Why didn't Cain kill himself? I, I cannot bear the, the, 
the fact of dishonoring God. Because he's not mad at himself. He's mad at God and he's mad at his brother. So he kills his brother. It's impossible for us to avoid sin, beloved. It's, it's, it's impossible. And will only add to our guilt by pursuing our own righteousness. That's why Cain feared retribution. He knew what was inside of people. We can't earn God's favor through works that we do. We can't undo our own sinfulness by doing good things. We can't change our identity as the descendants of Adam through doing good deeds. There's no fruit for us to eat or to offer up that will gain us back eternal life. Right? After we're told that God is guarding the way into the Garden of Eden so that they can't eat of the tree of life, in the next scene, there's no hope of salvation. Right? For Cain, there's nowhere to go. Where can Cain go? If he can't take of the fruit and eat it himself, that's why he's bringing offerings. That's in our DNA. I will earn this. I will earn this. There's nothing for us to eat, nothing for us to offer up that will gain us back eternal life. All of our good works. What does the Bible make of our efforts? Well, right out of the gate, God says, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not impressed with what you brought. All our good works are fig leaves, they're dirty money, they're filthy rags. Accepting our works is not how God will redeem people. There was another son, another firstborn to be exact. You remember what he did? Led into the wilderness for 40 days. The wilderness... That's the serpent's territory. That's where snakes live. Hungry, just like Eve. Tempted with power. Tempted with glory. But instead of giving in, ruled over sin. And therefore, thereby, became our Savior. How did God overcome our sin? How did he do it? For our sake, God made him, the seed of the woman, we now know, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. You become righteous by being in the one who is righteous. You you see that? You become, we are in him when we are from him, right? Second Corinthians 5.21, we must stop denying what we are and place our faith in another. Right? Just, just may I proclaim peace to you from the word of God tonight, believer. You do not have to earn this. You, you don't have to pay it back. When, when we think God did all that for me, the least I could do is, is the least you could do. Right? God isn't out there asking for payment. He said, take it. Take it. Believe him. What is the opposite? What's the alternative to believing it? Denying it. And how would I deny it? By saying, no, 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 I will work for this. We must surrender all our efforts to earn God's approval through our works. And trust in Christ by faith alone. We, we, we want to pretend that there's this fuzzy area where, well, 
I mean, but I'm still supposed to do good works. And so at no point whatsoever will those works gain you any approval before God. So should believers do good works? Yes, but we got to find another motivation than I, I have to do this, right? Or I'm, I'm, he did all that for me. Imagine getting $50 billion. Like we've talked about this before. And telling the person, look, I'm going to pay you back. And every first of the month, you give them a nickel. It's insulting. Right? It's, it's all that. That has nothing to do with your gratitude for the gift. That has everything to do with wanting it to look like I tried to pay you back. Well, you could live to be a thousand years old and give a nickel on the first of every month you're alive. It will be nothing. It'll be a drop in a bucket. Right? The, the, the point of salvation is not now you owe me. The, the, beloved, salvation is rooted in the character of God. There's just no way to explain it. There's just no way to explain it. There's no way to rationalize it. It is more beautiful than any fool like me could ever get it credit by yelling about it all the time. Right? It's, it's just, it's too much. It's otherworldly. This is who we are. This is who we are. Faith does not trust what it brings. To secure God's favor. Faith is believing, hoping for God's favor upon realizing there's nothing we can bring to secure it. Faith is to say, accept me because of what Jesus has done. That's the only cry the sinner has. It's the only cry a human being can have that won't lead to the destruction of other people. Right? You see how crucial salvation is not just for the vertical, but for the horizontal. This, this is what faith and works do when they clash. People die. Relationships get shattered. People wander off into loneliness and destitution. It's a fool's game. It will never be enough. It will never be enough. In Cain is the birth of religion. Man-made religion. Christianity is a religion. I don't mean that. What I mean is the birth of mankind's attempts to secure God's favor through his works. Cain is the birth of that. Jesus Christ is the death of that. Trying to distance ourselves from sinfulness by our good works is the purpose of all man-made religion. When God will conquer sin precisely by identifying with it and owning it in himself through Jesus Christ, meaning that faith in him is the only way to salvation. When you see Christ... Realize that everything he does, there's a type of it, right? There, there, there's something, there's a hint on almost every page about what he's going to do. And we talked about at the end of, in the middle of Genesis 3, that Jesus will be the true husband who stands in front of his wife as a substitute for her to defend her, right? Adam didn't do that. He blamed his wife, tried to get her killed, Jesus steps in. What is Jesus doing at the cross? Is Jesus admitting? Is, is he the first person to admit that he's guilty? No, it's way more beautiful than that. Jesus, all through the Bible, you have people that refuse to take responsibility for what they've done. Jesus comes along and takes responsibility for what everyone has done. It's, a, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's just the reversal of everything you read. He didn't do anything. Jesus was totally innocent. 
what is the source of our salvation? Somebody taking the blame for what we did. Faith is us standing there saying, no, 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 that should be me. And God's saying, no, I got it. I got it. You go enjoy it. I'm going to pay for this. All right? It's just the seed of the serpent works all through the Bible. Then comes the seed of the woman, the promised one, Jesus Christ, who's nothing like anybody that ever came before him. Right? He doesn't distance himself from sin when he was the only one that had the right or the ability to do that. Instead, he becomes our sin and is judged on our behalf. We get the salvation. He gets the glory. He's the reversal of Cain and Abel. Right? He's not the birth of religion. He's the death of trying to earn God's favor through our works. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. Romans 10, 4, I think. I'm going to pray. If you need to take refuge in Christ and you want to come and pray down front here with me to do that, you're more than welcome. But I'll be here for any reason as we sing. If you want to stand, we'll sing page 241. I'm here if you need to pray at all. Father, I thank you for the beauty of what Jesus Christ has done. I I thank you for the reversal that he has accomplished as the way we can come back to you. Lord, it is inherent in our nature to use works to get your favor. Your son is the end of this and we need him. Help us all to believe in him. We ask and pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.